about today, and again, I'll try to pull in a little more of what you mentioned here to the extent that I, I am able to. But um, what, are, what have you been told in the agencies you're working with? Are you allowed to work with people that have dementia? Not as a primary diagnosis. Uh-huh. Okay, good. And, but you're nodding. Any, has anybody been told in your agencies that if they have dementia, you can't work with them? Well, it depends, I think, on how severe it is. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you've just made two really good points, which I'll touch on, but you've already made them, that we don't, in, when we're in that mental health system, and we're building medic, mental health Medi-Cal, so we can't treat a primary diagnosis of dementia, but we can treat someone that has dementia and has another mental illness. So all the approved Medi-Cal diagnoses that we look up on the, either on the web or on this piece of paper that has tiny, weensy, weensy little <laughs> diagnoses, um, all the approved diagnoses, if they have dementia and one of those diagnoses, we can treat them as long as they're not so severe that they cannot benefit from whatever it is that we're treating. So I'm going to go over that a little more detail. I'm going to talk about some things to do when you how to document your services. Oh, maybe I should ask you this. How many of you are providing case management to the clients? Several. How many of you are providing psychotherapy to the clients? Some of you. Any of you providing medications? Uh-huh, okay. All right, so those are the primary kind of services. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit or reference certain types of psychotherapies that can be helpful for people that have some cognitive impairment. So these are some of the forms of cognitive impairment that we come across. And I don't have um, cognitive impairment due to substance abuse, so that's another one that would be on here. But with, with normal aging, uh, people will decline somewhat in their cognition. With mild cognitive impairment, it's a little bit more than what you would expect with normal aging. Then you have dementia um, in ICD-10, which we're, we're using ICD-10 and we're using DSM-5. So DSM-5 calls it major neurocognitive disorder. So those are two different terms, but they're covering the same ground. Delirium is disturbed consciousness, disturbed sensorium, disturbed thinking due to an acute medical issue. Um, we'll talk about a few others. And then there are other forms of cognitive impairment, but certainly substance abuse can, like active substance, so historical substance abuse can cause dementia. Current substance abuse can cause delirium and disturbed cognition. So some of the way, I mean, I, I don't know, how many of you have had older adults say, I think I'm getting Alzheimer's. Um, but you kind of think they're kind of okay, right? Mm -hmm. So some of our clients, we want to reassure them, right? So if, if it is normal, if this is what you see and it's not really interfering with their life functioning, you know, you probably can reassure them. It's normal to think and remember more slowly, have more trouble staying focused, have harder time multitasking, have harder time, you know, missing words or names for people or things. Um, and having trouble remembering things when not given more time to rehearse it and, and remember. Um, so that's kind of like normal, considered normal age changes. Mild cognitive impairment goes a little bit further and is often the precursor to a dementia. Not necessarily always, the research doesn't say it's 100%, but 
But the research does say it's like 50 to 100% of people with mild cognitive impairment, if they live long enough, will get a dementia. So it's memory decline more than normal aging, but not quite enough to meet the criteria for dementia. Um, okay. So dementia in ICD-10 is a decline in memory and thinking, which impairs their activities of daily living, and it's been going on for at least six months. So that's one way that to distinguish between a delirium and a dementia. Delirium, I mean, it could go on for more than six months, but it shouldn't because we should get, hopefully get the client treated. But you know, some of our clients refuse treatment and they could have a delirium go on that long. But to be dementia, it has to have been going on for that long. It typically affects learning, registrating, registrating, re registering information, storing it, and then retrieving it. So those are three pieces of memory, taking it in, keeping it in, and getting it out, right? Um, so uh, impairment of thinking and reasoning and a reduction in flow of ideas is also present. So memory is impaired and some form of thinking is impaired according to dementia in ICD-10. In the DSM-5, where they change things from the DSM-4, but they only, not only, they need to have significant decline in at least one cognitive domain. So in DSM-5, which just came out a few years ago, they dropped the need to have memory impairment and another thinking impairment. You, the person can have impairment in just one of these six areas. It's significant for major neurocognitive disorder and it's modest for mild. Okay, and it interferes with um, daily living. So there's different kinds of dementia and one of the handouts from the Alzheimer's Association goes into a little more on this. Um, most, the most common is Alzheimer's. Um, the second most common is stroke or cerebrovascular dementia. Then from brain injury, you know, we've heard uh, there's a movie recently about football players getting concussive, I forget the exact term, concussive something, something, but a, a brain damage can cause um, dementia, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy bodies dementia, and then there's many, many other types of dementia. Um, this website I put at the bottom is a really good website to give you a lot of information about these different types of dementia. Um, so, the, how often are we going to see it? So, in, in a general population, 10% of people over 65 and 40 to 50% of those over 85 and more percentage the older people get. Um, and, and Alzheimer's disease can start, you know, early onset can start in a person's middle age. Um, persons with serious mental illness, severe mental illness, especially there's some data out with people that have schizophrenia are more at a higher risk for getting dementia. So the percentages, I think, will be higher in our population, the people that we work with. It's also higher in people that have diabetes, yeah. high blood pressure, you know, a lot of the things that our clients have. So I think the incidence, the frequency in our population will be even higher than this. Um, so delirium should be a short-term shift in consciousness. Um, and it's more of a disturbance in attention, less of a disturbance in memory. So dementia is, is mostly a disturbance in memory, although not always. Um, 
But delirium is a disturbance in attention. Does that make sense, the difference between those two things? Okay, so you could be paying good attention to me, but if you don't remember, as soon as you walk out the door, um, that means you, your attention is good, so you weren't having a delirium. But you could, um, on the other hand, well, actually, if your attention is all messed up, it's really, your memory's not gonna be good either. Um, but people often confuse seeing something that looks, they think is dementia. Pe older adults often, pretty often can get um, diagnosed with a dementia when they have a delirium that should be treated uh, right away. So delirium is fluctuating mental status, disturbed consciousness, decreased ability to focus. Um, that's the main uh, primary symptom of delirium. So I mean, this, I'm not, that's not the point of my talk today, but uh, the main point I make with delirium is if you see a sudden change in your client's cognitive functioning, you want them to go see urgent care and try to get, try to get them to get a medical look at right away. So persons with severe mental illness, um, such as schizophrenia, bipolar, PTSD, all the kinds of people that we work with get dementia, right? So that that's one way they can have co-occurring dementia and mental illness. Um, I already said that about people with schizophrenia higher risk. People who develop a dementia may also get a depression or an anxiety disorder or a behavioral disturbance or a psychotic disorder. People with dementia also develop aggressive um, aggressive behaviors, psychosis, and other behavioral disorders, which us mental health providers can try to help. Um, and, and a lot of people with dementia have depression and even more have anxiety. Um, so we already discussed, can we treat them? And it sounds like you're not, this, in your group here, you're not being given the message that we can't, which is really good progress because 10 or 15 years ago, if I would ask a group like you, they would say, oh, we're told we can't treat them. So I think that sounds like you know, we're making some progress in, in, among mental health providers, which is good. Um, but they need to, the two things you guys said right at the beginning, they have to have a co-occurring mental illness and they have to be reasonably as, uh, assessed as being able to benefit from the services. And remember, benefiting means improving their condition or preventing deterioration. So I'm not, so just so you know, but principal, the DSM does not use the term primary diagnosis, even though we use that in general talking. The DSM uses the term principal diagnosis. So um, the principal diagnosis is what we are treating. It's not what came first. It's not what's the bigger problem. It's not what's causing what, but it's the thing we're treating. So. An example, if I have a heart condition, but then I fall down and break my arm, I go to the orthopedist, and he, when he bills my insurance, he says my problem is a broken arm. He doesn't say my problem is a heart condition. So it's the same thing for you. If, if your client goes to a neurologist, the neurologist is probably gonna say the primary diagnosis is the dementia. But when that patient client comes to you, you would be saying, you would be billing for your treatment of their anxiety or their depression or their schizophrenia or whatever ever that mental illness is. Um, and the, they don't call dementia a mental illness, which is kind of a historical issue that's just developed over time. It, it doesn't really make sense. Why is schizophrenia a mental illness and dementia is a medical illness? It, it doesn't really make sense, but that is the way our medical insurances are set up. 
I'm not exactly sure why. So I'll go through this quickly because it sounds like we're already in agreement on this, but this is what Medi-Cal, Title IX, Section, all that stuff says are the requirements for billing Medi-Cal if a person has dementia and billing for mental health services. So the person meets criteria for one of those covered uh, mental illnesses. The person has significant impairment in life functioning or probability of deterioration. The proposed mental health intervention focuses on the mental health diagnosis. So when we write our notes, we have to talk about how our case management or our meds or therapy or our rehab services are focused at helping the mental illness, not helping the problems due to the dementia. And sometimes that's easy to forget when you're writing our, your notes because caregivers all upset because the husband can't remember things. And so you do an intervention because of that, but it, it needs to be the intervention that you can bill Medi-Cal for under mental health services is to treat his depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, not the memory impairment. Um, the intervention is expected to help. Dementia is not the only behavioral disorder. So this can get a little tricky. I know in our intake department, we get intake sometimes another agency or a family member will refer someone who they don't know what to do with because their memory is declining and they won't move out of their house and they want to keep living where they're living and they're living alone. And we say, okay, well, we'll assess it. And all we can assess is dementia. We don't really see depression or anxiety or psychosis. So we can't, in our clinic, we can't really take them in. So we have to refer them to try to get help from APS or Alzheimer's Association or something like that. Um, even though there's a lot of problems with someone that's got dementia as it you know, gets worse and worse and so on. So that, to me, that's kind of heartbreaking that we can't even though I think actually we have the skills to help them, we could help them actually, but we couldn't bill for them. So we can't really take them. So some of the things in our DMH system that can help these people that have both cognitive impairment and mental illness is um, medications, psychotherapy, supportive counseling, mental health case management, emergency response, so psychiatric emergency, um, you know, try to help someone get into a hospital, uh, psych, psych hospital, psychiatric hospitalization, support groups. These are some of the things that I think in our system we can provide. Um, and people can be at different levels of, of dementia to benefit from, I mean, to, to, to benefit from psychotherapy, that's probably the person needs to have a kind of higher level of retained cognitive ability than, say, for case management or medications, right? That kind of makes sense. Um, okay, so just a few examples. A man develops Alzheimer's disease. He's in the early, early even to middle stage of it. He develops a major depressive disorder. Psychotherapy, such as cognitive behavioral or reminiscence or supportive therapies can help improve his mood. So later in the PowerPoint, I'll, there's um, actually recently getting more evidence, that's a strong term, research data that supports several different types of therapies for people with, with cognitive impairment, which is kind of promising. Um, but cognitive behavioral at the earlier stage, reminiscence I think can be applied at the early to middle stages of a dementia. Um, here's another example, an older adult living, that's kind of one I just sort of referred to, but older adult living alone in the community comes to the attention of APS, the psych emergency team, 
evaluates her. She has cognitive impairment, but she's also delusional. So it's suspicious. So the mental health system can focus on a delusional disorder. Um, the woman is hospitalized and then discharged home, but, well, the hospital could discharge her home or could discharge her to a facility. Lots of times these people get discharged to a facility, but a lot of these people want to live at home, right? So we could provide supportive mental health treatment um, with, you know, case management and potentially, uh, potentially medication to help her eat better, to help her have the supports around her and so that she could live at home as long as what we're treating is the delusional disorder, not the dementia. Um, another example is a, a person that's had you know, long-term schizophrenia, um, but as the woman gets older, there's been maybe five or six years ago, I don't know if you've heard about the black box warning for prescribing antipsychotics to people mm -hmm. with dementia. Mm -hmm. So there has been, in nursing homes especially, People with dementia were given lots of antipsychotics to calm them down, to make them easier to handle, right, so they wouldn't be troubled. So, and it was found that certain antipsychotics increased mortality, uh, premature mortality. And so there's a, I don't know if it's a law or a Medicare regulation that uh, nursing homes are watched closely for how often antipsychotics are prescribed. So some doctors ha have gotten really hesitant to prescribe an antipsychotic to someone with a dementia. But if, you ha if a client's had schizophrenia for their whole life and they've been on an antipsychotic and that's what they need, sometimes the primary care physician will not at this point prescribe it. But so they might need a geriatric psychiatrist or a psychiatrist that's familiar with this kind of work who will say, yes, this person merits um, being prescribed an antipsychotic. Um, so that would be another way we could help them um, you know, even if this person has pretty severe dementia, um, this person probably would not benefit from verbal psychotherapy, perhaps. But that doesn't mean we can't help them in the mental health system. So the mini mental status exam is a 30-item test. Um, asks you, where are you? What's today's date? What floor are you on? Help me. What else? Calculations. Some calculations like serial sevens backwards. Gives you three items to recall. So it's a quick screening for cognitive impairment. It's very widely used. It used to be, you could probably still find an old version on the internet. It used to be in the public domain and you could just get it off the internet. Now it is um, proprietary. It's not very expensive. I think they cost it like a dollar each for the paper. But um, it, it's really helpful to give to in an older adult services and I've seen in our work um, with older adults, we give it at intake and then annually. And you can see a person, if you, if you see a person that kind of each year goes down a few points, like a few points each year, you can see it over a few years, that is very consistent with an Alzheimer's diagnosis. Um, the MOCA is a really good test. It's harder for people, people um, especially with our clientele, a lot of, some of our people have low education and the MOCA is harder. It's also out of 30. Um, I think giving both, if you can, it, they give you different information. The DMH, uh, some years ago, five, six, seven years ago, decided that they would suggest using the mini mental status, but then they changed it recently and said suggested t giving the MOCA. So 
I think if you have someone with low education, I might give the MMSE. Or if you give the MOCA, just beware that a low score sometimes is more due to language difference and lower education. So I kind of, yeah. So they both have different, they have different strong points. So alternate cutoffs. Um, uh, typically with someone with 12 or more years of education on the MMSE, and you could look up MOCA norms for the MOCA on the internet, but for the MMSE, 23 has been considered if it's below that, might suggest cognitive impairment. But if someone has zero to eight years of education, maybe an 18 is still, 18, 19 is still, you know, not cognitive impairment. Um, so. Yeah, I think you really, really need to take education and language into it. You know, if you have someone that's very hard of hearing or is almost blind, you have, you have to take a lot of other factors into consideration in terms of how you interpret the score. You know, I've been asked this, is there an MMSC score that we use to cut off for services? And I'd say no. However, in my clinic, if someone has 10 or under, I get kind of worried about, certainly about doing psychotherapy with them. But um, there is no cutoff. The cutoff is, are, is the patient's capacities, can that support expectation of improvement or avoidance of deterioration? So it's really more subjective. And can you argue that and do you document that in the chart? And, and so if they have a low MMSE or MOCA score, uh, in terms of being audit ready, I mean, first of all, clinically, you need to evaluate, can you really help them with one of those kinds of, one or more services? And if you really think you can, then be sure to document it. And I think we can make a case, and I'll talk about that in a couple minutes. Um, when their condition has deteriorated such that their mental illness no longer benefits from mental health intervention, then we need to not be billing mental health Medi-Cal. Certainly can be heartbreaking, probably some of you. I mean, if we've had someone on, it, we're basically supporting someone and they deteriorate to that, I don't know. I mean, I know we sometimes keep them anyway and we're putting ourselves at audit risk, but we just can't stand to not provide supportive services. But then they're maybe getting to the point where they're gonna need to get evaluated for grave disability or self-neglect and might really need a higher level of care and then we might need to stop services. Um, so this is comes from Medicare, but I just think it's kind of helpful for, um, even though you, know, you may not be billing Medicare, but I didn't see this kind of verbiage, words in Medi-Cal regulations, but to do psychotherapy, to bill for psychotherapy, which is different than mental health rehab, obviously different than case management, but to bill for the psychotherapy codes, the person should, still be oriented to who they are, okay? They should be able to process information somehow. It doesn't mean that they have to remember what you talked about last week or two weeks ago, but they need to be able to, pro they can't just be unable to process something. They need to be able to recognize individuals, and that doesn't mean they need to remember your name, but they do need to, at least after, my sense is the first, second, or third visit, people might still not know who you are, but by the third, fourth visit, if they look at you with that blank look like they've never met you before, they're not recognizing you. And then I think their cognition has, has gone too far to, to, do, to bill for psychotherapy. They, and 
if they keep confusing you, like after three, four visits, they keep confusing with the physical therapist or the speech therapist, um, and they're not recognizing that this person comes to treat them for that and you come to treat them for their feelings, their, how they're doing, their behavior. I think that suggests maybe they can't recognize different individuals. Um, they need to be able to express their thoughts somehow, and it's really interesting, this is verbal or nonverbal. So, you know, we have had clients with aphasia where they can't really speak, but, you know, you can do a lot with writing or with picture boards, or you can get creative um, for communicating. It doesn't have to be, you know, they talk, you talk, you know, we talk and listen to each other. It can be more um, visual, yeah. Um, and somehow retain and apply concepts from one session to the next. It doesn't mean remember everything you said, but they do need to be able to retain the idea that, oh, when you come to see me, we talk. You know, you're not coming to look at my foot or something like that. Or when you come to see me, I know I feel better when you leave, you know. That, that somehow they're retaining some sense of what you're doing with them. So that's for psychotherapy per, per, in specific. Um, it's interesting in terms of expecting improvement or avoiding deterioration. I, I hear a lot that client, therapists say, their clients say, oh, I feel better like at the end of the session. But then actually even just this morning in my treatment team we were talking about, but I, I don't want them just to feel better after 45 minutes. I want them to feel better tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So does it last? And that's kind of hard to assess, but you kind of have to get a sense of it. Um, but here are a few ideas of how you might get a sense of it. Um, you want to monitor their ability to process information and document. Okay, so now I'm talking about documenting, what I think is important to get somewhere into your notes. Um, can they really process information? Can they understand and respond in a meaningful way? And again, this is for psychotherapy. Um, for example, if a client reacts to you in a positive manner when you walk in the room, after you've had a small handful of sessions already, um, and you think that means he feels comfortable with you due to your, his or her relational memory, um, then record this that indicates that they remember you. That shows that they're able to process that you're there for talking purposes and they feel better when you come. Um, another example, if the client starts talking to you about his or her feelings at the minute you get in, that suggests that they're remembering that that's what you come for. So I would document that. I would also like if, if they, you, you, they give you a big smile when you come in. Now that might be their personality, right? Some people just have big smiles for everybody. Those are just lovely people, right? But, um, but if you think that means they're recognizing you, then I would document that you think that. Um, you want to be assessing for and documenting how the, the services are benefiting them or avoiding deterioration, helping avoid deterioration. So, here are some examples, but I would try to document something. If you have the clinical sense that it's helping, try to put your finger on why you think that and write it down. So you could ask a caregiver, and if the caregiver says the client seems less agitated or less depressed since you've been coming to see the client, well then there's, there's some improvement or helping avoid deterioration. Um, if they seem brighter and, or they say they feel better at the end of the session, write that down. Um, if you see some decrease in behavioral disturbance, like the nurses aren't complaining as much that, that the person's screaming all the time or something like that, write it down um, as evidence that it's helping. Um, 
you want to be documenting their functional level, which could include the MMSE or the MOCA score. It could include how much they're doing for themselves or um, how they're getting along in the place they're living. Um, you want to document that the patient's attention span is the duration of the session. So, you know, if they start getting kind of fuzzy-headed after 25 minutes, your sessions should only be 20, 20 minutes long. You don't have to do a whole hour session. Um, and it, with most of these kind of clients, it's really probably helpful to be consulting with their primary care doctor so you can know what's going on medically with them. Um, so on documenting case management services, remember that the case management needs to be targeting their mental illness, not their dementia or cognitive impairment. So in the TCM note, document how the mental illness interferes with, like so if you help them get access services so they can get around, or you help them get, yeah, um, and you, want to, you don't want to document, well, their memory impairment makes it so they can't do it themselves. You want to put in there their depression worsens their memory impairment, which makes it so that they can't do it themselves. Um, so you also want to document how the mental illness is expected to improve or not deteriorate because of the case management. So helping the client be served by access transportation is expected to help him to go to his doctor and get best medical care and thereby by better his mood. So not that it's going to help his dementia. Right, okay. So, so just these are just a few pointers about doing therapy or, um, or rehab services or counseling that the client may not remember concrete details but does become impacted by communication of respect and the tone of the relationship. That is like, the, to me, the most important part. Um, it may take up to three visits or so before they really kind of got you in their memory. Um, I mean, I don't know how many times I've had clinicians come back to me and say after the first session, they, don't, they, they can't have therapy because they don't remember me. And I'll say, well, try a couple more times. So they come back the second time, the person doesn't remember me. By the third time, they're kind of convinced that this client can benefit because the, the client sort of remembers them. Um, they may never remember your name. They may n never remember the time and the date of appointments, but that's okay. You might need to remind them before you come so they're there. And ready for you. So um, some of the things that you can try to do with um, therapy with a client, therapy or counseling or rehab services. Decrease emotional distress. That's kind of one of the big things. Help ventilate their emotions, provide relief. Um, decrease intensity of unexpressed and un unresolved feelings. Facilitate grieving. Those bullet points are kind of all in the same category. You can help increase self-esteem, diffuse self-blame, shame, and embarrassment. So a lot of people with cognitive impairment are very embarrassed, ashamed, either having cognitive impairment or the stuff that ends up happening or they do because of it. And you can try to help them understand that this illness causes it. And while some caregiver might say that to them, you can really try to help them internalize that it's not their fault um, and help them find their strengths and increase their self-esteem. You can try to help them regain a sense of personal identity. A lot of times people, when they start losing cognition, feel like they're not the same person anymore and they don't know who they are, but they are still the same person. And you can help kind of pull, pull that out. Um, 
You can try to help improve relationships with significant others. You can do work with them and the caregivers, if there are caregivers. Um, you can try to help improve sense of control or predictability. A lot of times when people start you know, um, decreasing in cognition, the world sort of takes over for them, whether it's their family or it's IHSS workers or nursing home staff or assisted living staff. And they lose the sense of getting to do what they want or when they want it or how they want it. And that's not always, it's not necessary for them to lose all that control. And you can help, you know, problem solve and figure out ways they can still have control over at least whatever it is that they can still have control over. You can help increase sense of connectedness, decrease isolation. People with cognitive impairment can get to feel, I mean, people with mental illness can feel pretty isolated. But then you take on, add on to that losing some of their memory. Um, and then the way people get treated when their memory's bad can get very, very isolating. And another thing you can help with is behavior problems. So we're going to talk some more about all those. So one form of therapy or supportive services is called validation therapy. Naomi Feel, she's a, is or was a nurse and developed this approach to working with people with dementia and it's really very much similar to really good Carl Rogers client-centered psychotherapy of basically tuning into the client's reality, really trying to use your empathy and your sensitivity to like, what is this person feeling? What is he or she thinking that they're having trouble putting into words? And you can help clarify and articulate their thoughts uh, either if they can say, you know, if you ask them how they're feeling and they can tell you, great. If they can't tell you, you try to pull it out of them. If they really can't get it, you make hypotheses and using your empathy to sort of suggest what they might be thinking or feeling. And then if they agree, you got it right. If they don't agree, if they agree, you've probably gotten it right. And if they don't agree, you can try to um, figure out what it is. So while memory for cognitions decreases sooner, memory for emotion is retained longer. So there's even research on that. Um, just the way your brain is organized that people will lose more of the cognitive stuff first. And, and this is not true for everybody, but this would be in an Alzheimer's dementia. In, in a cerebrovascular dementia, it depends where like the strokes were or the cerebral incidents were. But for a large number of people with cognitive impairment, they're going to remember emotion more than they're going to remember um, cognition. So I think that's something that a lot of times people in a person's world doesn't, re doesn't get that. So I think working with the emotion is really important and that's what you can do as clinicians. Um, validating their humanness through a respectful relationship. So another approach to, to helping someone, again, therapy or counseling or rehab services can be helping the person experience the pleasure of past successes and positive memories, um, aiding improvement in self-constant mood. So, so how many of you are familiar with life review therapy? Some of you, reminiscence therapy? So, okay, so it, it's kind of like what it sounds like, but you can really go with a person, you can draw a timeline, you can help them go back and remember stuff that happened to them, they experienced and help them talk about the successes, um, the, the pleasures, 
there's different kinds of life reminiscence, and they are they have quite a significant evidence base of helping with depression and some other mental illnesses. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, but I think the way that's most likely to help with someone with cognitive impairment is to focus on the successes, strengths, and pleasures of the past, not so much trying to help them rework the losses and the regrets. That type is maybe a little bit less likely, but it doesn't mean it couldn't work with some people with cognitive impairment. Um, teaching people relaxation skills can really help a lot. Um, so here's a few of the, um, some of the research that's out there. there it's not like a, a big body of research yet, but some of the research that's been out there for people doing therapy with people with dementia and a mental illness. So Peaceful Mind, um, it's a, a cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety with persons with dementia. Interventions include self-awareness, breathing, behavioral activation, uh, helping them do more pleasant events, calming thoughts, sleep skills. So there's the reference, and again, you'll get the PowerPoint, so you'll have that. Cognitive behavioral therapy has been found to be effective in reducing depression and anxiety with persons with mild dementia, but also edging towards moderate. This, the second bullet point, um, restore, empower, mobilize, it has, and if you Google Restore, Empower, Mobilize, you can get this little treatment, actually it's kind of thick treatment manual that goes into quite a structured way of using, it's a combination of CBT, supportive therapy, um, to help reduce depression and some anxiety with people with mild to moderate. Like they had people in their protocol that had people with MMSEs down to a 10. So they're finding some evidence for the effectiveness of this approach. Um, another uh, set of data on problem adaptation therapy. So this, the, in this approach, you goes through situation selection. The patient, and if there's a caregiver and the therapist, identify situations that trigger negative emotions and make a plan to avoid these. Um, they identify situations that trigger positive emotions and plan, make a plan to promote them. They modify situations, so the patient and therapist and caregiver, if there is one, identify compensatory strategies or environmental adaptation to modify situations that trigger the strong negative emotional response. Using attention, so um, using tools like attention, visual tools, acoustic tools to bypass limitations, so problem solving to figure out what one can do to um, bypass some of the limitations of their thinking. It, it, this is still the same um, type of therapy. Changing cognitions, the therapist can help the patient with the help of the caregiver if necessary to develop realistic, hopeful approach to the functional limitations. And I think, just a side note, working with people with cognitive impairment, sometimes it's, our culture says, oh, it's horrible. It's so horrible that the person has cognitive decline. And I would just encourage us to think, Maybe it's not horrible, horrible. Maybe it's part of life and part of aging that, well, I'm, it's not saying it's good, but I, I think sometimes we buy into the hopelessness and the devastation, and I think we can try to hold on to some hope that there are things that can be done, ways that life can be made better. 
Um, and we can try to help that. So holding on to hope, that's part of, it's a big part of what as therapists and mental health helpers we want to try to hold on to hope. Um, and then modulating the client's response, using tools to de-escalate emotionally charged situations. So that was another form of therapy. And then I think this is the last one, and I'm going to go back to the other slides. But another form of therapy, compassion-focused therapy. So it includes a supportive carer. Um, they like that word better than caregiver. I'm not sure exactly why. It's hard to say. Carer to act as an external memory aid for the home practice and it can be implemented without a care. So this is a little bit more on the hopeful side of trying to help the client and maybe the caregiver develop more self-compassion, self-soothing, um, mindful awareness, loving kindness for self. So just some of those concepts that come out. I think some of this sounds like it might come out of um, acceptance commitment therapy, kind of that, that type of approach. Um, so. That, that kind of trying to implement those kinds of approaches. So another thing you might be called on to help people with in an assisted living facility or a skilled nursing facility or in a family where there's behavior problems. And this can happen with someone with mental illness, someone with cognitive impairment, and someone with both. But um, in your handouts, I gave you a little form that looks like this. It's basically just a worksheet that you could make up your own but how many of you have done behavioral analysis with clients? Maybe with kids more often, yeah. So it's the ABCs, right? Um, what you do is you, either you do it or more likely someone that lives with the person, your client, will you ask them to um, chart for you know, several days to a week what happened be, if there's behavior, disturbing behaviors, things that get in the way of life? What happened, like the B for behavior, what actually happened? Did it start suddenly or gradually? How long did it last? And then what happened before it? Um, when did it occur? Where did it occur? What were the antecedents? And then what were the consequences? What happened after the problem? So the point is to get some data um, over several days of what happened, what happened right before, what happened right after, and why do you think this person did it? You know, I think one of the, um, the handouts before this is this disturb, behavior disturbing, it gives you some ideas of what might have been, but is it that the caregiver that came to them reminds them of somebody that traumatized them earlier in their life, so they start screaming whenever that person comes on, or when they're supposed to take a shower, do they get all upset because they don't want someone to see them naked or they don't like getting cold or too hot or something? But you, you have to kind of do, do the detective work. But you want to get your data first over several days like this and then trying to understand what does the person need? You know, what inside them that they're not being able to, either they can't or won't tell you. And then you want to try to get that need met without reinforcing the problem behavior. So maybe they need a different caregiver, or maybe they need to take their shower at night instead of in the morning, or maybe they it's need more quiet and it got too noisy at that time of day, or something like that. Um, so this is one way you can might be asked to help in a more of a group setting or institutional setting. And then another way you might be helping people is ca with caregivers, 
um, family or staff. You can really try to help. A lot of times people that live with, work with regularly or live with someone with these kind of impairments get so frustrated. I mean, I know, you know, my mom's starting to have some cognitive decline, and I know it's frustrating me, and I should know better, but you want to help the family or the staff try to understand their, fee their feelings and needs rather than just reacting to the overt behavior. Help them understand what the client's trying to communicate, teach more helpful communication skills, provide support for caregivers, identify resources, medications, um, and brainstorming to reduce the agitated behavior. So these are just some of the things that you can help family members with. I'm trying to think if I have anything to say about people that are on meds, and that's just, you know, in terms of trying to distinguish what's caused by the medications, uh, one thing that I think is helpful is getting a geriatric assessment, an uh, interdisciplinary geriatric assessment. So um, UCLA, USC, um, I know Irvine has one, Huntington Hospital in Pasadena has one, but a lot of times doctors that are not familiar with geriatric patients are not as familiar with all the effects of medicines on a person's body because, you know, as a person's body, there's all kinds of um, biological things that change as a person's body ages in terms of how medications are metabolized and, and excreted and all those things. So getting a good geriatric assessment is helpful. Um, they're not necessarily easy to find, but they are out there. And um, if a person has Medi-Cal and Medicare, if they have Medi-Cal only, it's going to be harder to find someone that will do it. If they have Medi-Cal and Medicare, it's more likely that you should be able to find someone that would do a good all-around geriatric assessment, um, interdisciplinary. And those are usually done in hospitals. They're not inpatient hospitals, but they're usually done in medical settings. Um, sometimes what needs to happen, which is maybe not able to be happening, is for the person to be pulled off their meds and then gradually put on a few of them. Then you have, I mean, the whole issue of clients that are addicted to pain meds, and that's such a, a huge issue that <coughs> that is a tough, tough one. Um, you've got to go to motivational interviewing, I think, and stuff like that. All right, well, thank you for your attention. and. Um, Yes, yeah. if I can be of help, I'd be happy to help.